This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. National Wildlife Week is a time to celebrate the beauty and diversity of America's wildlife. Even species you think you know have strange secrets to reveal. Joining us to talk about these secrets and more is head naturalist for the National Wildlife Federation, David Mijazewski. And as always, Dr. Major's here, ready to help with your pet questions. Libby likes to know about your brushes with nature. Join the conversation with your phone call. The number is one mpb ring It's one 672 Email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. If you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, a reminder that it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Let's uh, start with you. What are you seeing in your yard here lately? Good morning. Well, let's see. The favorite snake I've seen this week. Uh, friends have been sending me pictures of lots of snakes, and I just wasn't seeing any yet. So I've got a great little ribbon snake uh, while we were walking a couple of days ago. Beautiful little thing, and it's um, very gentle and sweet. i got a, a tiny little pet along his back. And he uh, let me, he posed for pictures, but I, you know, stayed respectfully back a little bit. Uh, he's a, a dark brown, very thin, long snake, a little guy, probably no bigger around than, oh, I guess maybe a bundle of two or three pencils might be about the size, he, you know, the thickness of him, with three whitish, pale yellow um, ribbons along his back, and um, a pretty pretty face and very alert so beautiful little snake and a nice snake to have around your yard so um and let's see the other oh a neat thing i've been seeing too or um maybe i better say trying to see are the hooded warblers we've been hearing them for the last few days yesterday four different places on our walk we heard them singing the mail and um could never really get a good look. So I'm still trying to get a good look at our hooded warblers. Uh, we hear them every year. Some years we get really good looks at them. So that's what we're hoping for. And let's see, hummingbirds are still coming through. Lots of hummingbirds. And I've been getting questions about cicadas. Uh, some of the national news outlets have been talking about the uh, the big cicada out, uh, emergence that will happen sometime in the next couple of months. But we're not going to really be a part of that here in Mississippi. You know, I, when was that? Maybe 2015 that we had a good emergence. We have uh, an emergence about every 13 years. These are 17-year cicadas, which are, I think, the same genus as ours, but very similar. Uh, the closest place you could probably go to see and hear them would be in eastern Tennessee. So when you see all that information in the um, national media, uh, you're going to have to travel a little bit north to see these. Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, all through that area, uh, people are going to 
have a they think a very big emergence in the next few weeks. I think the ground has to warm up to I believe they say 65 degrees. So when the ground is pretty consistently 65, they come out. But now we will have our annual cicadas. Every year we do have cicadas. We just don't always have that big emergence. These will be the kind of thing where you might hear just one or two together at a time and see them um, on tree bark. So you can still look for your cicadas. We're just not going to have one of those great big emergence that um, many people in the country will get to enjoy. So how does the hooded warbler get its name? Oh, the hooded warbler is a beautiful yellow warbler. It's it's back, though. When it turns its back to you, it just kind of disappears. You know, one of those things, it's, it's kind of a greenish-brown back. But uh, the front of the bird is um, lots of beautiful yellow, and then it's got on a black hood that's... Um, one of those kind of hoods you can use, I guess, for a, a mask that people wore in the winter. So it, it wraps up your whole head and around your neck, and you can, you know, pull it up over your mouth if you're a person. So they've got their their COVID mask on, I guess you'd say. <laughs> but absolutely beautiful. You know, I've got a song right here. You want me to play it? Sure. Well, that one didn't play very much. Let me try another one. That's what we've been hearing. Is that loud enough for you to hear? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's an interesting one. That sounds yeah, it's a beautiful. Sounds familiar. So they're fairly common here in Mississippi. Um, I would not say common, okay. and they they migrate through this time of year, and a few will stay and nest. Now, you know. People say prothonotaries are rare. I have them in my yard, so I don't think of them as rare. And so I assume there are places where there are plenty of hoodeds. But for me, they're um, a real treat to get to see. And I think for people that aren't like, like me, that aren't used to sort of discerning bird calls, that sounded familiar to me simply because I think I associate, you know, that's a bird as opposed to whichever kind of bird it is. So you really, which, you know, goes yeah. to show. When you begin birding, that's the fun, I think, of training your both your eyes and your ears to uh, to try to figure out what you're seeing and hearing. Yeah, I'm not nearly good as good as Paul is with the songs. He's he's very musical and he um, identifies and learns the songs really easily. So I'm always having to ask now, which one, which one? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun to. To try anyway, I I find myself each year having to relearn the birds, whereas he retains it better. But uh, there's so many good resources now online that you can um, kind of get a refresher to listen to the birds that are going to be coming through. And there are lots of places where you can learn which birds are are passing through your area. This is Creature Comforts in the elm and the animal welfare system. The beginning of spring until early fall is known as kitten season. Although that may sound cute, it's the time of year when unspayed female cats have most of their litters and animal shelters are inundated by orphaned kittens who need intensive care. In fact, our producer Java found four kittens under his house just a few days ago. So, Dr. Major, let's bring you into the conversation. Remind us of the importance of spaying and neutering your pets. Well, Java can attest to that. Uh, Apparently, they started out with two and then found three and then four and something happened to the mother apparently and uh they rescued these kittens and have taken them to a shelter which is a great 
thing to do. Uh, the The problem is this: uh, un unneutered, unspayed male and female cats will reproduce at a pretty drastic rate. Uh, there are certain areas in Jackson, for example, uh, and surrounding areas where you have a lot of uh, unspayed or unneutered kittens, uh, cats. Uh, you know, they're in the environment. Uh, people feed them. I encourage them to either trap or get them where they can be taken, spayed, and neutered, and uh, that that is the best thing that they can do. But they will produce a lot of kittens. And we see that. I think this is right on the cusp of kitten season right now. And we will see many, many, many more uh, as time goes on. And I would imagine simply because they're more maybe outdoor and more feral cats. I don't know if there are feral dogs out there, but this does maybe seem to be a, an issue with probably more with cats than with dogs. But as a pet owner, dog or cat, important to go ahead and get that done. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of cats that are what I call indoor-outdoor cats, and uh, they get into trouble a lot of times uh, during the season, especially their cats patrolling the, the neighborhood, get into fights, and uh, uh, have abscesses or wounds. Uh, so it, it is wise to make sure that your animals are spayed and neutered, both dogs and cats. And uh, I think that probably uh, most people are aware of this if they're pet owners, but then again, some are not. So, and there's different types of assistance that may, they may you may receive uh, in spaying and neutering uh, cats and dogs. Right. I, th- I think a lot of times there are uh, drives and things that to get it done, and I, I think some uh, clinics and places offer you know discounts for doing it because again, it really is that important to do it and it's you know it's not only for for us so that they're not roaming around but it's it's you know it's the humane thing to do so that we don't have a lot of uh, cats and dogs running around that have no real home right and of course you know they spread disease spread is one of the the key things here that you're trying to avoid uh there's a lot of the upper respiratory diseases that uh cats would have uh and it's readily spread to the kittens uh, I don't believe there's that many what I would call feral dogs in, in the area, but there are a lot of dogs that are roaming the streets and uh, have an owner somewhere, and uh, those dogs need to be spayed or neutered as well. So if you get a new kitten or puppy, that's probably one of the first things that you want to talk to with your vet about is uh, when is the appropriate time to do that and go ahead and have that done uh, so that we can, uh, you know, so uh, just so we don't have a lot of unwanted animals, uh, you know, taking up space and and in uh, uh, inundating our animal shelters. Exactly. Uh, it's time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll be joined by our guest, who is the head naturalist and spokesperson for the National Wildlife Federation. We'll be visiting with David Mizajewski. National Wildlife Week is April 5th through the 9th this year, and we'll talk about ways to participate and get more attuned with nature. You can still call in with questions and comments. Our phone number is one mpb ring It's one 7464 Email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts 
bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. You are listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation with question or comment, the number is one eight seven seven MPB Ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four or email animals at mpbonline.org. So now we're going to welcome our guest to today. Uh, it's head naturalist at the National Wildlife Federation, David Mizajewski. David, thanks for joining us this morning. And before we start talking about National Wildlife Week, if you would, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in wildlife. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me. I'm always excited to uh, come on any program to talk about wildlife. It's my passion. So I, um, as you as you mentioned, I'm a naturalist with the National Wildlife Federation, and we are one of the oldest and largest wildlife conservation nonprofit organizations. We really focus on America's wildlife. And so I've been there going on, it'll be 21 years this year, uh, which is kind of surprising to even myself. <laughs> but um, I've been, uh, I, I do a lot of work with our Garden for Wildlife program. That's how I got my start at National Wildlife Federation. Um, this idea of urban ecology, suburban ecology, and how we can all restore habitat for wildlife right where we live. And um, I do a lot of media appearances. I've hosted series on Animal Planet and Nat Geo Wild and do the Today Show and Conan O'Brien and Martha Stewart shows and all of that, promoting wildlife conservation and education. And of course, this week is National Wildlife Week. And so um, I'm out uh, hitting the, the all the airwaves trying to talk about America's unique wildlife. That's our theme for this year. Uh, so growing up, was it uh, the type of kid that loved to get outside in the great outdoors and explore nature? For sure. Yeah. I um, often get asked the question, how did you get into all of this? And my answer, and it's an honest answer, is I was born this way. <laughs> I, I definitely, um, from the earliest in my memory, can uh, always remember sort of being drawn to animals and had a love for animals and love being outside. And I was very fortunate to grow up um, in a place where I could you know, just kind of explore nature. My mom would let my sisters and me just sort of run around with our friends in the neighborhood and we climbed trees and caught frogs. And um, that really kind of was the really important foundation for what eventually became my career, which is, again, a, a naturalist. I have a degree in human and natural ecology paired with political science from Emory University. Um, and, you know, it's 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 something that I always knew that I wanted to do something related to animals and nature. And and here I am today, all these years later, at the National Wildlife Federation. So we are in National Wildlife Week. It's designated as a time to celebrate the beauty and diversity of America's wildlife. Uh, uh, David, is it kind of a this week used as sort of just a public awareness? Because I think most people, if you ask them, would say, yes, I enjoy nature. I enjoy, you know, going out and looking at wildlife and that sort of thing. But they, maybe they don't. Uh, aren't aware of what they might could do to help uh, preserve this. That's just it. Yeah, we've been doing National Wildlife Week for literally decades, and it's it's a week out of the year where we really try to focus and and signal boost the messages that we're trying to get out year round, and that is 
we want to celebrate wildlife. We want to protect wildlife. We want to get everybody involved in these conservation efforts so that we can have a future where we have healthy wildlife populations, a healthy shared environment, not just for the wildlife, but for, for us as well. Clean air, clean water, all of that good stuff. And so, yeah, every year, every spring, we, we, we kind of ramp everything up during National Wildlife Week and try to reach as many people as possible. So what are some ways that folks who are listening and just kind of the everyday Joe uh, can be involved, help uh, to protect wildlife? Well, I, I would encourage everybody to start by going to our National Wildlife Week website. You just Google National Wildlife Week. It'll be the first thing that pops up. And we've got actually a whole bunch of different ways that people can get involved. Um, you know, simple, simple ways. We've got a pledge that people can take that literally just says, like, I care about wildlife and I'm going to make the commitment. And we have a fun little incentive for folks to take that pledge. We have a what we're calling a wildlife gear and go uh, kit that we put together. Five people who take the pledge are going to get that. And it's got a fleece and a hat and a cooler to for your drinks when you're out, you know, sort of out exploring nature, um, some food tins if you're you know, hiking all day or even camping out, stuff like that. So, you know, fun, simple ways to get involved. But to get more more involved, we've we've got kind of three buckets of areas where people can can do things. The first is uh, letting your voice be be heard about the need to get involved in wildlife conservation. So if you are more of, you know, of an activist type, you can join our efforts to promote things like the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, really critically important piece of legislation that we're trying to get past that would use existing funding to fund the state wildlife conservation organization so they can actually save some of these declining species, of which we have about 12,000 right here in the US. And these are species identified by biologists as in need of conservation help, but they're not getting it. And they're not endangered yet. And the whole goal of Recovering America's Wildlife Act is to do a little bit of proactive conservation work um, on these species before they get to that critically, you know, that really critical space of being endangered and having having to be listed as endangered, at which point, you know, it's like intensive care. It takes a, a lot of resources to, to recover those species. But if we do it proactively, we can probably have some big successes. And I will mention this has bipartisan support. Um, that's important to us at the National Wildlife Federation. But that's one way that you can get involved. Other ways include more personal actions, planting native plants to support butterflies and the bird populations. You know, these are things that we can do right outside our door, and it really does make a difference. So all of this stuff is listed on the National Wildlife Federation's National Wildlife Week website, and I really encourage everybody to go check it out. There's a lot of other fun stuff on there. We have a partnership with BuzzFeed this year where you can take one of their famous quizzes and find out what unique wildlife your personality matches. So not very scientific, but a lot of fun. And hopefully folks will learn a little bit about some of our unique wildlife from doing it. We are visiting today with the head naturalist at the National Wildlife Federation, David Mizajewski. Uh David, have you been here to Mississippi before? You know, I have not ever been to Mississippi. I need to correct that when this pandemic is over. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I grew up in New Jersey and I actually just moved back here after being away for 20, almost 30 years. Um, but, you know, spent some time in Georgia. So I, I got a little bit of Southern, Southern experience, lived in Virginia for a while, spent most of the last 20 plus years in Washington, D.C., which is where uh, outside of D.C. and Virginia is where the National Wildlife Federation is headquartered. But uh, I relocated up to the New York City area because I do a lot of media work and um, it just seemed like a better, better spot to me. And so I'm kind of back to my roots. But 
Um, I do travel the country, and you know, Mississippi is just one of those states that fate has not brought me to yet. So we ha- we have to correct that. We would love to have you. We're real proud of our natural resources here in Mississippi. Uh, do you know some surprises about maybe the the wildlife down here? Well, yeah, one one species that we're focusing on this this year for National Wildlife Week um, in this this theme of America's unique wildlife that a lot of people don't know about is the hellbender. And number one, I love the hellbender because it's got a cool name, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know who came up with this name, but it's, it, you know, especially for me a, a, as a kid growing up, you know, when I was like a 10-year-old boy and learning about, you know, the, all the creepy crawly critters out there and discovering that there was an animal called a hellbender that lives right here <laughs> in America, I was like, I, I was hooked. So, so hellbenders are a kind of salamander. And in fact, they're the largest salamander species that we have here in the U.S. And I think it's maybe the third largest um, in the world. So they're pretty big. They can get to be, you know, over two feet long. And they live um, kind of in a north to south uh, sort of range, starting up in, you know, the, the northeast and coming all the way down into the deep south. And they live in streams. They're aquatic. And in addition to having just a really cool name, they're very bizarre looking. They look like an animal that would come out of maybe like a, a Star Wars movie, right? Um, they don't look real. They're they're big. They're very flat, and they've got this just beautifully camouflaged skin that makes them look like kind of the rocky bottom of the streams in which they live. And the skin has all of these just strange looking flaps all over it. it. It almost looks like their skin is too big for their body. And the reason that they have that, 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 well, all of that, right? So all of those adaptations, the flat body is to help keep them streamlined in these fast moving streams that they live in so they don't get washed away. And they tend to stick on the rocky bottoms. And so that flat body also helps them kind of wedge themselves in and under the rocks that they live in. And the color of their skin, of course, is perfect camouflage for that gravelly rocky bottom in those streams. And the skin flaps are an adaptation to help them essentially absorb oxygen. So amphibians have this wonderful skin that allows them to absorb liquids and gases right out of the environment around them. And so those extra skin flaps on the hellbender, it just is more surface area of skin so they can absorb more oxygen out of the water so they don't have to always come up to the surface um, because they really are supremely adapted to being aquatic. They really never come out of the water. And so I just think they're really cool. And again, a lot of people don't even know about this animal. Um, And that's, again, with the National Wildlife Week theme, when we were coming up with it, I, I, I was just thinking about the fact that most people, when you talk about wildlife and, and unique wildlife, um, you know, people are thinking of all sorts of wonderful species from all around the world. You know, everything from lions and giraffes to flying lemurs and, you know, just strange and unique animals around the globe. But I really wanted to focus a little bit closer to home. I mean, that's what we where we focus our conservation work at the National Wildlife Federation. And honestly, I wanted Americans to have a little bit of pride in our very own wildlife species. And there really are some, some interesting ones. The hellbender is one that's found in Mississippi. Some of the species that we're focusing on are things like the javelina. Now, again, most Americans have no clue that we have this kind of bizarre pig-like animal that looks like a pig, but it's totally not a pig. Um, they live in the desert southwest in Arizona, New Mexico, as well as, um, you know, sort of the southern and western portions of Texas. And, you know, if you looked at this animal, you would say that's a pig. It looks like a pig. It's got a pig nose. It's got a pig-shaped body. But it's actually a kind of animal called a peccary. 
And peccaries are only found in the Americas. And it's the javelina or collared peccary that ranges the furthest north up into the U.S. Um, the other, the, the collared peccaries and then the other two species are found in, in all the way down through South America. So it's just a, an animal, again, that I have found most Americans have no clue about unless they live in those areas. So we wanted to celebrate that. Another one is the mountain beaver. Have you guys ever heard of a mountain beaver? I have not. <laughs> so a mountain beaver is not a beaver. It is a rodent like a beaver, and it doesn't really look like a beaver. Um, it's it's brown, but it doesn't have the big beaver tail. It's not anywhere near as big as a beaver. It's an ancient rodent species that is only found in the Pacific Northwest. Now, again, if you live in Washington or Oregon or Northern California, you probably know what a mountain beaver is because sometimes they show up in people's backyards. But anywhere else in the country, I found people just have no idea that these animals exist. And they um, they, they have sort of a, a primitive uh, internal system. And so their kidneys are not particularly efficient. So they, they need a lot of moisture in their environment. They need a lot of water. And so that's why they're only found in the Pacific Northwest because it's such a, you know, a moist, wet environment. Um, so again, just a whole bunch of different really cool species. By the way, I mentioned our BuzzFeed quiz before. These are the, the unique American wildlife species that if you take the quiz, we're going to pair you with one of them. And again, just have a little bit of fun with it. But uh, but yeah, so that's that's what we're our focus is for National Wildlife Week this year. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll plug the website again, nationalwildlifeweek.nwf.org. That's where you get the BuzzFeed quiz, where you can take our pledge to protect wildlife and where you can you know, basically take any number of other actions, depending on what your interests are, to help out wildlife. So I did uh, Google the, the Hellbender, and you're right. It's it's, it's a crazy-looking creature, and there's a picture of one, and it's uh, a guy's holding it. It's from the tip of his uh, index finger all the way up to almost his shoulder. So they are uh, interesting animals. And if you're listening this morning, I would encourage you to maybe Google up and see what we were talking about. It is a very unique-looking animal. Before our first break, Glenn, we get one call on the line. Melanie has been holding for us. Uh, good morning. Thanks for calling. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Um just before I ask my question, I want to say that to me the most amazing thing about bird songs is how much volume comes out of such a little teeny tiny body. <laughs> we can hear the birds in your background. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm on my front porch. It's, it's a lovely place, but uh, they can get pretty pretty noisy at times. However, I wanted to ask a question about a kitten. Is the vet still on the line? Yes, go ahead. Okay, so I have a kitten that I got at the Gaucher Shelter who apparently suffered a lot of trauma before I got him. And when I got him, he suffered more trauma because he got past me and got loose in my house and was, you know, missing in action for a couple of days and so forth and so on. But, okay, so I have finally, after two months, got him to the point where I can pick him up, but he doesn't like it, but I can pick him up. He got his first baby shots at the shelter, but I couldn't catch him you know, until about last week. Well, maybe I could have if I was willing to completely traumatize him. But I'm wondering now, I feel like it would still be a big trauma for him to be shoved in a carriage and, you know, taken to the vet. So is it okay to wait a while longer to get the rest of his shots, or is it too late now to get his baby shots? Or He had his rabies, and he's neutered, of course. Yes. How, how, old, how old is he now? Um, well, we estimate about six months. Okay, okay. 
I would continue to work with him. Uh, he's going to be confined to your house. Uh, do you have other cats there? No, I don't. Okay. okay. I would say wait on the shots. Let's work with him, see if you can't get him to be a little more, uh, what should I say, uh, agreeable to being handled. Right. And... He loves you know, to be petted, but he just—it's just you can tell it's traumatic even when he's being petted that he's still and nervous. And it's hard to, um, what should I say, uh, adjust to uh, going to the vet uh, with a cat like this. But I would call ahead, you know, make an appointment, obviously, and tell him that you know the cat just needs to be uh, handled minimally, but it does need to get its shots, uh, uh, and you may have to start over. Uh, I don't know when it got its first shot, how old it was then, but at least it needs a booster shot. Not the rabies this year, but uh, definitely the feline rhinotracheitis distemper, uh, that sort of thing. Right. Well, I was wondering, since he's confined to the house and not associating with any other animals, really, (laughs) except looking through the door at my dog and really wanting to get out, but... (laughs) Well, and this is one of the things. He may make a break one time or sometime. And it would be important to have him vaccinated just in case he did do that, or if you uh, brought another cat home at some point. Yeah, he actually did make a break about a week, well, two weeks, I guess, after we brought him home. Fortunately, it was a very rainy, windy day, and so he wouldn't come back in. And so I let him. I turned off all the lights. It was night, and let him stay out for about an hour or so. Then I opened the back door and poured his food into his bowl very noisily and sat it down in the only light in the area <laughs> and he waited about three minutes and went into that so i guess right. he figured it's bad in here but it's even worse out there <laughs> there you go well sounds like you you really love this kitten or cat and uh best of luck with you and taking care of him just continue to work uh with him there may be some things that you can do talk to you vet about some of the calming things that uh, are available there is a calming collar that uh, can be used, and it does help with some cats to kind of make them mellow out. Uh, and it has the maternal uh, pheromone-type things with it, so that might help some. Oh, okay. So good luck with him, okay? All righty. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for calling, Melanie. Uh, Libby, you had something you wanted to add uh, before we go to our break. Yeah, I just wanted to address the hellbender. Uh, They are rare in Mississippi. And a few years ago, the museum wanted to undertake a research study and had a little bit of funding for it. And so what we turned to, because they are so hard to find in any of our regular collecting ways, was to use environmental DNA. And it was the first environmental DNA project that really we had done very much of and we did uh that's where you basically you sample water in habitats that you think are a good place to find hellbenders and you can detect a little bit of hellbender dna in that water then you know that yes one has been there so we did um locate a few places in the state but anyway i thought that was just a nice thing to add in there science is cool (laughs) isn't it great (laughs) Uh, Let's uh, take a break. When we get back, we will talk to David about some of his many television appearances as a regular guest on the Wendy Williams Show, the Today Show, and others. Talk about some of his most memorable animal appearances. Dr. Major and Libby still on hand for your pet questions and brushes with nature. Call in to join the conversation at 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-MPB-RING. 
672-7464. Email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. Have you been in this situation? You're listening to a great story on Think Radio in your vehicle, but now it's time to go inside. You want to keep listening, but you're ready to move on. What can you do? Pull up the MPB Public Media app on your phone while you're in the car. You can continue listening to that great MPB local show and not miss a moment. Search for the MPB Public Media app in your app store. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It's Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you've missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using any podcasting app. You can also download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone so you get to listen to all the MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. To join the conversation this morning, it's a phone call, one mpb ring It's one 672 Email animals at mpbonline.org. We're celebrating National Wildlife Week on the show today with our guest head naturalist at the National Wildlife Federation, David Mizajewski. So if someone were to do a simple web search, David, there's some, find a lot of videos of you bringing wildlife to talk shows, Conan O'Brien, the Wendy Williams Show, among others. Tell us about bringing wild animals on TV. That sounds like that should uh, be interesting. <laughs> yeah, interesting is 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 definitely the right word. So you know, there's there's a long history of 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 naturalists and wildlife experts bringing on what we call ambassador animals onto you know TV programs and and honestly a lot of other programs, you know, stage programs and things like that. Um, it's a really wonderful way of of helping to connect with audiences. You know, when they can actually see some of these animals. Um, you know, people just get that emotional connection that we know just from 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 social marketing and from behavior change that you know is necessary to get people to actually care. And so, um, you know, it's it, it 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 we reach a lot of people by doing those media appearances and introduce them to this idea of wildlife conservation. And you know, when I go on, uh, you know, shows like the Today Show or or Conan O'Brien or the Martha Stewart Show, I used to do regularly. You know, it's my, my goal is to have some fun with it, you know, recognizing that, you know, these are these are entertainment platforms um, and and, you know, we keep it lighthearted. But my goal is always is to respect the animals and to sh- kind of showcase their natural behaviors. And sometimes, you know, again, that that's animals do weird things. And so we do have a little bit of fun with it. And, um, you know, my my job on these is to sort of be the straight guy. The, the, the hosts oftentimes are the comedians and making, you know, funny comments and whatever. But I always see that as an opportunity to give good information out, to, you know, correct misperceptions and to really hammer home this idea that, that animals need our protection and that, you know, these these wildlife ambassadors that we work with, you know, they live in 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 zoos and they get regular care and veterinary attention and and all the things, you know, special diets and they're cared for by trained keepers that these are not pets. These are ambassador animals that we're fortunate enough to be able to work with to, you know, kind of tell the message of their, their wild cousin. So so, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. And again, we reach lots and lots of people. Yeah, I've had the good fortune uh, on this show of uh, visiting with snakes 
Uh, and one time, I can't remember what sort of bird of prey it was, but we had a bird of prey in the studio. And it, it is amazing when you see these creatures, you know, up close, obviously, when they're out in their natural habitat, we can kind of get a good look at them, but never get an up close look. And I remember uh, the bird of prey, when he flapped his wings, he he nearly blew every piece of paper off the table. And so it was really uh, exciting to, to get to see them up close. When, yeah. So uh, picking out an animal to bring on a show, I guess, again, it is TV, so there is the entertainment factor, but you do want to kind of balance that with uh, 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 maybe a lighthearted teaching moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, everything I mean, you mentioned snakes. I on my very first appearance on Conan O'Brien many years ago, um, I, I brought on a Burmese python. This is a you know common snake species that that you can find in, in, in zoos. And, and, you know, some people even keep them as pets, although I don't recommend that because they get very large. But at any rate, um, you know, brought this snake on and it's you know, a big snake. It was, I think, 13, 14 feet long. So Conan and I are holding it up. And, you know, snakes are such maligned animals. And I always love bringing them on TV because, again, people have that emotional reaction. Usually it's negative. Usually they're saying, ew, gross, scary, right? But, you know, that's fine because that's an opportunity. They're going to remember um, that, that seeing that. And then I can then dispel myths about snakes, that snakes are important. Snakes are necessary in the environment. And almost all snake species are 100% harmless to people. Right. How many people out there you know, still have that that sort of attitude of the only good snake is a dead snake. Right. So if I can bring on one of these giant snakes and get a wow factor out of people and then talk about their incredible adaptations and how important they are in their native ecosystems and also highlight issues like invasive species. You know, Burmese pythons happen to be, unfortunately, a non-native invasive species down in Florida where they, they they escaped captivity and they're breeding and they're basically doing a, a, a really negative impact on some of our native wildlife species. Um, tip, mammals, birds, and even alligators, they're eating them. So, you know, so to be able to bring an animal like that on Conan and have a funny moment where, you know, these are constrictors, right? So they kind of wrap themselves around the prey. And I'm talking about all this stuff and giving all my science information. And Conan is is like nudging me, being like, he's he's crushing my arm. And I honestly thought, no, oh, you know, this is Conan, you know, just playing it up, you know, hamming it up for the camera. And after the segment was over and we had, or after that, we were done with that animal. We had to, you know, hand it off and bring out the next animal. Like literally the snake was wrapped around his arm so tightly, like I couldn't get it off. And so I said, I said it on camera. I was like, oh, you weren't lying. And of course he got a huge reaction, He, you know, and everybody laughed. And, but, you know, that's the kind of stuff that people remember. You know, if I just go and give a lecture, you know, about snakes, it's not going to be as impactful. But if I can bring an ambassador animal with me and go on television and capitalize on the airwaves and reach millions of people, you know, it can be really powerful in terms of raising awareness and inspiring people to maybe change their attitudes a little bit about um, about negative attitudes towards wildlife and maybe even get involved in the conservation efforts of the National Wildlife Federation. Hey, David, this is uh, Java in the booth, and I have a question because, like Kevin said, a lot of people, they like nature. They enjoy nature. Nobody, I don't think we have any nature haters <laughs> out there, but how can be, people become less passive in their enjoyment of nature and, um, I, I guess, become more passionate about nature? Are there some things people can do um, maybe in their own backyard that can have them become more passionate people when it comes to nature? 
you know, there's a lot that we can do right in our own cities and towns and neighborhoods to make them, you know, better and more hospitable for all the, you know, the diversity of wildlife that are out there. And in fact, that's one of the things that we're really promoting during National Wildlife Week is this idea of kind of greening our cities. And it's something that, uh, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, planting a butterfly garden. Something so simple can actually make a huge difference for another species that is really important in Mississippi, and that is the monarch butterfly. So monarch butterflies are one of our only migratory birds, or birds, they're not birds, they're butterflies, migratory butterflies. And the entire population east of the Rockies will migrate every fall down to Mexico, up into the mountains outside of Mexico City, where they gather in just you know huge numbers, and they overwinter there for like you know seven, eight months. And right now, they are beginning their northward migration. And in fact, they're probably getting into Mississippi right about now. And it's going to take them multiple generations. It doesn't, it's not one butterfly that goes to Mexico and then returns um, and, and repopulates the rest of North America. It takes four to five generations over the course of the spring and summer. And then that last generation that hatches in August or September will turn around and, and, and go back. And they somehow know how to get to the exact spot that their great, 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 great grandparents got to. And so um, Mississippi is in the, the the flyway for these butterflies. And so w the unfortunate thing is that the monarch butterflies are disappearing, um, partly because we have gotten rid of the only plant that their caterpillars can eat. And that's a plant called milkweed. Now, milkweed has a little bit of a PR problem because it's got weed in the name. And so we generally don't like it because we think, oh, it's going to take over. But the reality is, is that in, in, in the U.S., we've got over 90 species of milkweed that are native wildflowers here. And many of them are beautiful and well-behaved in the garden, and they make great choices. So, you know, if everybody out there planted a milkweed that's native to Mississippi, something like swamp milkweed. Again, not the best name, but swamp milkweed is a beautiful wildflower. It's got beautiful pink flowers. It smells like candy. And the monarch butterfly caterpillars will feed on it. And again, without that milkweed out in the landscape, the monarch butterflies are declining. And the the they are declining rapidly. They're beginning to disappear. The other thing that they need are nectar plants, for the adult butterflies. So the caterpillar feeds on the leaf of the host plant and it's only milkweed. That's the only thing they can eat. The adult butterflies can drink flower nectar and they can drink flower nectar from any number of blooming wildflowers or, or shrubs. Uh, milkweed happens to be a nectar plant as well. So it's a real it's a real win-win. So again, I, I hopefully hopefully people will this spring plant a few of these native wildflowers, particularly milkweed, get those in the ground now, and trust me, it works. Um, again, the National Wildlife Federation has this entire program called Garden for Wildlife, and it's all about how each of us can make our own piece of the earth a little bit better for wildlife by planting these native plants. And when you do, I guarantee you, you're going to start seeing some really cool insects show up, like the butterflies, like some of our native bee species, which are completely different than the honeybee, by the way. Um, they don't live in hives. They don't make honey. They rarely, if ever, sting because they're not protecting their, their honey or their hive. Um, and they're really important pollinators. So anyway, Garden for Wildlife, it's something that everybody can do. And what better week to do it or start it than National Wildlife Week? This is Creature Comforts. Let's take our last break for the hour. Today we're talking about wildlife and National Wildlife Week with our guest, David Mizajewski from the National Wildlife Federation. We'll be back with more, so stay tuned. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the hour is David Mizajewski from the National Wildlife Federation. Uh, so, David, uh, you were talking about uh, some of the native plants uh, with the the, the milkweed uh, specifically about uh, for the monarch butterflies. Are there some other native plants that people could consider uh, putting in their yards and in their areas that would be important uh, to wildlife in Mississippi? Absolutely, yeah. So, so first, I want to tell people again: go to the National Wildlife Week website. Just Google National Wildlife Week. And under the action section, you'll find a link to the National Wildlife Federation's Native Plant Finder. Now, native plants are just the plants that naturally grow in your area. Uh, Many of them are beautiful and ornamental. And they're the plants that the wildlife need to survive. Without the native plants, the local wildlife don't have the resources and habitat that they need. Now, the Native Plant Finder is really neat because we have worked with scientists um, to actually look at what the, the data that are out there tell us about the plants that are most important for certain groups of wildlife. And in this case, it's the plants that are the best host plants for the caterpillars of butterflies and moths. And so again, if you wanna plant that butterfly garden, you have to plant the nectar plants, but you really have to plant those caterpillar host plants. So you can put your zip code in to the National Wildlife Federation native plant finder, and you will get a list based on the science of the top plants that support the most numbers of butterflies and moths. Now. What's surprising to most people, they think, oh, you know, I'm going to put this in, I'm going to attract butterflies, and I'm going to get a list of wildflowers. And we do, you know, provide that. But they're oftentimes surprised to find out that it's trees that are most important as caterpillar host plants. And actually, in in, in preparation for this, I did that. I I looked up the uh, the zip one of the zip codes in in Jackson, and I plugged that into the Native Plant Finder, and turns out that oak trees are the best plant that you can plant if you want to attract butterflies. In Mississippi, there are, uh, where did my notes go here? There are 395 species of butterflies and moths that use the native oaks of Mississippi as their caterpillar host plant, followed by um, the hickories and the pecans that um, support 194 species of butterflies and moths. And even if you're not really into the butterflies and particularly the moths, a lot of people, you know, they don't like moths, um, which is a, is a shame because moths are really important and beautiful and wonderful. The butterflies kind of hog up all the attention um, of their, their family of insects because they're pretty. But moths are important pollinators, but they're critically important as a food source for birds. So, you know, this is that whole Disney thing of like circle of life, you know, all of that, right? So the caterpillar, the, the, the butterflies and moths lay their eggs on the native host plants, the caterpillars hatch and start eating those plants. Then those caterpillars become the bottom of the food web in terms of animal protein. Everything eats them. And they fuel that whole the whole kind of ecology of other wildlife species, notably our backyard birds. Now, 
you know, during the pandemic, it's been said that we've all turned into birders because so many of us have been, you know, staying at home a lot more and just looking out the window and and entertaining ourselves by bird watching, which, by the way, I think is a wonderful thing. But um, but everybody loves to attract birds and see birds, and a lot of people put out bird feeders and things like that. Well, guess what is nature's bird feeder? Those caterpillars. So if you plant the caterpillar host plants, um, you'll attract the butterflies. They'll lay their eggs, and then. 96% of our backyard birds feed their babies a diet of insects, mostly caterpillars, and they need a lot of them. One chickadee pair needs to catch between six and 9,000 insects to feed one nest of babies successfully. So plant those natives and please do not spray pesticides. They wipe out all the good bugs with the bad and the food for the bird. So if you wanna see birds, you need bugs. All right, we are just right out about a time. David, thank you so much for an enjoyable hour, very informative, and uh, hopefully maybe we can have you on the show again uh, in the near future sometime. Anytime. Happy National Wildlife Week. All right. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can find it by going to mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Maver, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, David Mizuzuski, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady all-mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts, only on MPB Think Radio.